Good morning. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which can be found on page 1556 of the Pew Bible. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Thanks, Libby. All right. Hey, everyone. So we're starting the Gospel of Luke, which I joked last hour would probably last the duration of the current presidency, but then there were jokes about how long that presidency would last. So um, it'll probably be till the end of the fall. Um, the, uh, we had our first engagement equipped this last, this last Monday. Um, there were more than 180 people there. It was great. I talked to people after the sessions. They said the sessions were really good. So if you didn't get to go this time because you're lactose intolerant, you were having cheesecake or something, or you just couldn't come, I hope you get to come next time. But that'll, uh, that'll be coming around next month. So uh, at the beginning of, of series, I, I usually do a little bit of review because I'm tr- I want to make sure that there's significant continuity in what we're studying as a church because I believe that most of the times sermons are just these independent sermons and like there's no building over time and I really don't think that that's helpful for us to master the truths that can change us. Okay, so in all of 2017, we basically studied um, what it means to be a a Christian of growing in spiritual substance, that God has made us um, for himself, and he has saved us in Christ. But the question that we really should be asking after that is, what are we saved for, right? We're not just saved for heaven. That's, a pl- that's where we're going. That's like a place. We're saved for, like, what purpose in us, right? And the Bible, what the Bible teaches the purpose is in us, is that he saved us to become like Christ in character, what the Bible calls holiness or godliness, or righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but real righteousness, right? And so we memorized this passage together. So you can say it with me if you want, but it's, it's, this is what it says, right? And this was basically what we, we studied this, this set of ideas all year. His divine power has given us everything—no, I'm going to go slow, so you got to track with me, because we're going to do it, like, for what it means, okay? His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You guys are much more participatory than last hour. (laughs) By his own glory and goodness, right? Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires, right? For this very reason, make every effort. Say that part again. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith 
goodness into goodness, knowledge into knowledge, self-control into self-control, perseverance into perseverance, godliness into godliness, brotherly kindness into brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if anybody does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort—let's say that part again—make every effort to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? That was like a year, right? God has made us to be like Christ. He's made us for godliness, which is true humanity, right? That's, that's not just being like God. We're God's image bearers, and he's making us ourselves by drawing us up into his image, which is imaged in Christ, okay? So then the question is, okay, man, that sounds, that sounds hard. That sounds hard, right? And so like, what is the fuel that fuels the battle to grow in godliness? Even though it's all gift, it's still, we're still making every effort. We're doing these things so that we never fail. Like, where do you get that? And that's gift too. That strength, that capacity, right? And the answer in the Bible is joy. Right? That God's—the fuel God gives—he gives for growing godliness, the destiny of all of his redeemed creatures, and the emotion that's rightly evoked by his glory and goodness is joy. And so the last series we did, we studied how in the Old Testament, God gave his people a series of festivals that if you add them all up, they add up to about 75 to 80 days out of the year that are all festivals where you had to be happy. Like they were like feast and eat and have a huge party that's also a sacred assembly in which you are thankful and you rejoice in being thankful for the harvests and what God did in the past, bringing you out of slavery and the home he gave you in the promised land that you don't have to live in booths anymore, but you can live in houses and that you didn't build those houses or dig those cisterns or plant those vineyards. They were all just given to you, right? And he says that he takes them into a land, not a land of law, but he takes them into a land that flows with milk and honey, two things that nature keeps producing that you don't make, right? Foods that we still eat and that have not really been improved upon, especially in Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin would be the land of milk and beer, and I don't know if he'd say the same thing about that, right? Benjamin Franklin did once say that beer is a sign that God loves us, but he's not in the Bible, so. <laughs> but what, what we also saw in, um, in these is these festivals are there for a reason. And what we found was that even though God gave these festivals, the people wouldn't even submit to God's parties. Okay, like, like you know you're a little hard-headed when somebody's like, I want you to have all these parties, and you're like, we're not doing it. Right? And so, like, the whole story of the Bible is people ignoring the commands to joy. And in ignoring the commands to joy, they lose the sense of God's glory and his goodness. They lose their desire to follow him. They lose their identity in him. And they start going after lesser joys, lesser loves. And joy and godliness are things that you have to fight for. 
They're the, the, it's the greatest battle of your life. That's why those, those rituals were there. That's why God says to, to be at worship and to worship God. One of the reasons why I've, over the, over the last few years, I've told the worship team that I want at least one gospel song that is danceable in every service. is not just because I want the church to become more multi-ethnic, though I do. That's great. God's human race is multi-ethnic, and part of that is doing multiple cultural musics. But different cultures produce their cultural artifacts for different reasons in order to have different effects. And one of the things gospel music is particularly good at is by rehearsing a truth over again, it forces you to deal with the fact that you feel inhibited about that truth. And you don't want to just sing it out entirely. You don't want to give yourself totally emotionally to it. And to say, yes, this totally describes my heart. This is how I feel. This is what I believe. This is who I am. And you have to either, you have to make a choice to either like, be like, I'm not going to sing that really. I'm not going to sing it like that. And, and sort of admit to yourself and prove empirically that you have a bad attitude, right? Or that you don't really believe what you say you believe. Or you have to just give yourself to the thing. Dance, wave your arms, clap your hands, sing it out, being like, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this which resets your inhibitions. It pushes out those like inhibitions of worldliness that creep in all week. It pushes them when you're like, this is who I am. And then you can rethink your thoughts clearly around that. And gospel music does it better than any other kind of music I know of, right? So we have these things like worshiping together, praying together, reading God's word to reset our mind and what God has said, listening to preaching, having Christian fellowship, celebrating the Lord's Supper, engaging in baptism when we believe in celebrating that as a church. All of those kinds of things are all sort of these rituals, these spaces, these structures that God gives us for the fight for joy. Does that make sense? But it requires not just that we do the spiritual disciplines, but that we have some spiritual discipline. It requires a certain amount of spiritual ferociousness. And Spiritual passivity will not work. It just won't work. Christianity is a ferocious faith. Does that make sense? And if you don't get that, you can't fight for joy. So then the question is, well, how do you fight for joy, right? And you have to recognize that what the Bible teaches is the fight, the great fight that every human, the, the war we must all wage is inside of us. Right? That within, within us, the Bible speaks of a battle between the work of the Spirit— which is interacting with the image of God and the conscience that God has given us, and what the Bible calls the flesh, which is the part of us that just wants to do the stuff we want to want, we just want. And it interacts with a lot of our just bodily desires, but then it elevates them to places they should never be. And it makes us, shrinks us, and makes us smaller and more vaporous and less strong and more brittle emotionally, right? And this battle of killing the flesh and giving ourselves to the growth of the work of the Spirit is a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, the festivals pointed to what that had to be rooted in, which is that God was with them and God had done things to redeem them and showed them what he was like, right? He brought them out of the land of slavery. He gave them homes. He gave them a law for how to live together. He did all these kinds of things. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he had rescued people out of sin, and he had given them a future life, and he had made eternal promises to them, and he had freed them from the clutches of sin and make, given them spiritual authority to live in a certain way in the world, and he'd done all these things for them. And that you have to see and savor that 
for your heart to get calibrated in the direction the Spirit wants to take us in knowing and seeing and enjoying the gospel, right? One of the ways that the Bible talks about this is in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. He says this, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring or the fountain of living water, and have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, that's not about water, right? What he's saying is he's saying, He is, God is this fountain of living water, and the water is fresh, and it's pure, and it's clean, and it flows out to you, and you just drink it, right? But you can also say, I want to have life on my own terms. I'm going to dig out a hole, and I'm going to take water, and I'm going to put it in there, and I'm going to use it how I want to use it. Okay, the problem is, is that the idolatrous little cistern lives we dig out for ourselves have like dirt in them, and they're cracked, and they don't hold the water, and they, you, when you drink out of them after a while, they make you sick. And he's saying, this is what's happened. I gave the people myself, that is a spring of living water, and instead of drinking it and enjoying it and being glad about it, they wanted—they weren't happy with that, and they wanted to dig out their own cisterns, and they wanted to commit all kinds of idolatries, and they, they thought that that would make them well. And he, so he says, is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has she—has he become a plunder, right? He's saying, like, look, the slavery of sin, the absolute destruction, the havoc that is wrought in your life by walking away from Jesus and by not following God and by doing stuff that's foolish— and wrong. He's like, is that, like, is that your birthright? Like, were you, were you born into that? Like, that that had to be your identity? And he's like, no! Because, of course, Israel at this point has been redeemed, right? He's like, that's not their birthright. So then why is it that they're plundered by everybody and broken, right? And he's like, it's because they don't want to drink from, from the fountain of living water. The whole idea of that fountain is that there's joy there, right? And so when you think about the gospel, Luke is very, very careful about how he starts his gospel. And I'm actually not going to preach out of the infancy narratives. I'm going to start right—I'm going to preach this. I'm going to jump right to John the Baptist because most churches preach those things about every other year at Christmas time. Okay? So I've preached them like three times already since I've been at High Point. Just go into the sermon archives and you'll find them. Okay? But if you go through those infancy narratives, right, which is a lot of stuff, like—let me see if I have a slide of this, right? So like in two chapters— Luke covers all this stuff. The angel coming to Zechariah, the birth of John the Baptist, Gabriel going to Nazareth talking to Mary, her becoming pregnant, Mary visits Elizabeth, Mary's song, John the Baptist is born, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah's song, the trek of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus in a manger, the shepherds in the fields at night, and the story of Jesus as a boy in the temple. That's all in those two chapters. And you see, thematically, every episode tells a story about joy. Every single one but they're all a hard joy, right? Mary's like this young woman who's not even married, whose like fiance's probably gonna divorce her, right? And she, she's like, she's like, okay, we can do this. You know, Zachariah and Elizabeth have been, have been infertile for like decades, right? Zachariah's prayed so long to have a child that he's cynical about praying to have a child so much so that when Gabriel's like, you're gonna have a child, he's like, how could I possibly know that? And he's like, I'm an angel. Like, did I, did I not get dressed today? Like, I'm an angel. Are you kidding me? Right? And then he's like, now you're not going to speak for nine months because you're being a dork. Right? Because you've been praying for this. I just said your prayer has been heard. Right? But, but like, but he says, but he says, now listen, Zachariah, you're going to have a son and he will be a great joy to you. And many will he bring back to the Lord as God. Right? Mary's song, she says, God has done great things for me. 
He has lifted up the hungry. He's fed the, filled the hungry with good things. And he sent away the rich and powerful who prey on us. He sent them away empty. He cares about justice in the world that he's, he's seen me when nobody could see me, right? And then you get to the shepherds. I mean, think about this. Mary only got one angel, right? I mean, he got, she got Gabriel, and he's apparently the straight dope. But like, the shepherds, these are guys, they have nothing to do with Jesus. Like, they're, they're just out on the hillside. They've got sheep. They're like eating porridge, you know, and they, they probably don't smell great, and they're like scratching fleas, and all of a sudden it says, listen, it says a great heavenly host, and like we don't use the word host anymore, but it means like an army size of people, right? A host is like an army, and so there's like a thousand angels in the sky singing glory to God in the highest, Right? and peace on earth on whom his favor rests, right? And it says, in relationship to that, that they went away with great joy because they wanted to see what had happened, right? That's like, that's crazy. But every narrative, they're all true stories, and yet Luke arranges them in an orderly way so that you can see that this whole book, this whole story, the whole life, death, and resurrection, everything he's going to say about Jesus, the assumption in all of it is that if you see the glory that is in the Christ, you will experience the joy. And that's it, man. If you refuse to see the glory and the goodness that is in the Christ, you will not experience or feel or see the joy. So, the response to that, Luke puts on Mary, because she's kind of his, his semi-main character in these first three chapters. And it says twice that something happened, and Mary, she treasured it, right? She saw what was happening with Jesus, and she, she took it in, and she treasured it, and then she pondered it. What does it mean? Right? And one of them is when, is when Jesus stays behind in the temple for like three days when they're going back to Galilee. So they come down for probably one of the festivals, and she thinks, she and Joseph think he's playing with some of the cousins or something, and like three days later, they find out Jesus isn't with them. They're like basically in Galilee, right? Now, first of all, can we please go back to that parenting model? Can you imagine what a good mood my wife and I would be in all the time if like we could just be like, you know, I haven't checked in with you in three days. Jude, how are you doing? You know, like, just like totally like, I'll go play. We'll see ya. See you later. You know, that would be awesome. Okay. But like, so, so he's in the temple, and it basically says that they're a little upset when they find him. Like, they find him in the temple, and they're like, son, what the heck are you doing? Like, we went to—we were going up to Galilee. Like, it's another part of the country. It's a different Roman state. Like, you, what do you do? He's like, you guys, I thought you'd know I was in my father's house. And they're like— Oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> right? But apparently, apparently the way—because see, some people that don't like Christianity, they're like, see, Jesus didn't know, even obey, like, the fifth commandment till—I don't know which one it is. Sorry. I know it's the first one with a promise, because it says that in Ephesians. But I don't—but obey your—like, honor your father and mother, right? He's like, Jesus doesn't even honor his father and mother, right? So he's blah, blah, blah. Well, whatever. Mary didn't feel that way. Mary was moved by it. Mary was like— in his father's house. Yeah, right. Like, that's so amazing. She treasured it. 
first, and then she pondered it. And what Luke is trying to tell us by telling us what Mary did is he's saying, that's got to be you. You've got to do that. Okay, you need to see, see the Son of God in his glory. You need to, you need to tre- hear it, see it, and then you need to treasure it, and then you need to ponder it. And if you do that, you'll see the glory and the goodness in the Christ and you will have access emotionally to the joy. And the joy is the fuel for godliness, and godliness is the fuel of virtue, and virtue is strength. But it's the strength to love, and the strength to be strong in all good things. And that power comes from seeing the joy of God in the beauty and glory of God in the Christ. Okay? Now, so then you might say, okay, Nick, then why are we talking about these four verses? They sounded like a rather technical intro, you know, like, Dear Excellent Theophilus, I'm writing you a blah, 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 blah. It sounds like a tax report, you know? And, but it's actually, it's very, it's, it's very important, right? And the reason is, is because the Gospel of Luke, like the other Gospels, are a testimony. And testimonies, right, that tell us what happened have a certain group of very important properties, and they need to be certain. Like, we, they have to be trustworthy, and Luke understands that, right? Like, the Spirit inspired him to shape and tell the testimony about Jesus in the maximally trustworthy way for the good of all human beings who would ever come after him. And so it's, what it's meant to show us is that the good news or the gospel rests on a certain testimony. Or you could say it this way, the testimony about Jesus is as solid as a rock. No, there's a couple—we'll look at one assumption and two ideas in that. The assumption is that you've, you've got to know, for that to make sense, that news always rests on testimony. That's the kind of thing news is. Because news is an unrepeatable event, okay? So th- imagine if, like, if you're a student or something, imagine going to, like, a college lecture. If you're not, nah, imagine watching somebody give some talk on YouTube about something, right? Like, this is how to use a hummingbird Helix 9 fish finder with mega bottom imaging, okay? Sorry. You expect the person giving a speech to have, like, personal expertise, coherent message, an intuitive appeal. Like, it's got to, like, work with stuff, some of the stuff you already think. It's got to be relevant and useful. You'll be like, oh, I could use this. This is good, right? And then it needs to be promising if you do it. Like, hey, if you do this, you'll get this result. You'll be like, I think if I do that, I'm going to get that result, right? And then it should be verifiable through practice. Like, you should be able to do it. Like, if I say, if you do these drills, your game will improve this way, right? Like, people watch golf videos, and they're like, ooh, I can, I can do that. That'll make my shot better, right? You see, testimony is kind of different. Because, like, testimony is not independently verifiable, except for by other testimony. And that's really important. So, like, if I tell you something scientific, like, let's use a kindergarten example. Like, if you pour vinegar and baking soda together, it'll go— right? And you could be like, oh, I think I believe you, Nick, but I'm gonna go get me some baking soda and vinegar on my way home, and we're gonna verify that, right? And so you can replicate my experiment, right? And you can be sure that's the case, just, you know, do it over the sink, right? But see, testimony is not like that. Testimony is a really fundamentally different thing, because it's referring to a non-repeatable thing. Like, if I say to you, okay, um, did Abraham Lincoln exist? Right? You're like, of course, Abraham Lincoln existed, you big idiot. Okay. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that word. You big person who's not 
as bright as I'd hoped. Okay. Um, and I say, well, how do you know Abraham Lincoln existed? You're like, well, it's in books and history and stuff. And I'm like, well, fantastic. Like, how did they know the history book writers? Well, because they quoted sources. Okay, great. Well, which one, what sources? And how did they know? And eventually you get back to some kind of witnesses, like people who are like, you know, like Abraham Lincoln's writings or something, you know? And test, see, testimony is the sort of thing that sees a non-repeatable ev- event and tells about it. And once that event is over, you're limited to whoever the people who can testify it are. So if you have like a, like an event that happens, like somebody like sets the gap on fire at the mall or something, you know, and like 12 people saw that and that's it, right? Like you can interview everybody on planet earth. You got 12 witnesses. Like that's it. Those are the only people who can give testimony are those 12 people. And like you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, but you cannot increase that number. It's set permanently. Now here's why this is important. Because you may not like the fact that you are left to believe the Gospels. You might wish that God did some other things to give you more certainty about what he did. But here's what you need to recognize. If he did something different, you would not be saved by grace through an event. You see, the minute God decided to give salvation as a free gift, and the minute he decided that would be done through an atoning work, that atoning work had to be a particular event— An event by definition is situated in a particular moment in history that has a limited number of witnesses, and it can't be any other way. It's like arguing about why Jesus wasn't a woman. Well, he had to be a man or a woman, right? Why wasn't he Russian? Well, he had to be something, so he was Jewish. It's like arguing about, like, why wasn't he three inches taller than he was? Well, he had to be some height, right? He's a person. A person has an ethnicity, a sex, and a height. Right? And so, like, the minute it's an atoning event, that event has witnesses. That number of witnesses is static. It can never grow. And so he chose that the truth would come to you by testimony. That's not a problem. It's actually because he chose the most glorious way to save you. Because he chose to save you freely through an event, that locked in that he would then tell you that event happened through testimony. So the question is, well, how good's the testimony? And the answer is, really good! But that's what you're going to get. It's going to come to you in testimony. Does that make sense? Because all news rests on testimony. All news. Even the good news. Right? Now, once you get that, the gospel rests on abundant and credible testimony. You can hardly imagine. So when you, when, when I talk about the credibility of the testimony about Jesus, the only thing that is incredible about it is the fact that it testifies to somebody who is dead coming to life again. There's some people that just like, they won't even listen. Like, it's just like, nope, that's enough to falsify it, right? And if that's your attitude, then I guess that's your attitude. I don't, I don't know what to do for you. Um, but that's really the only good objection on the base, and that's not a good objection, right? Because there's no reason in principle if a God exists, a resurrection can't happen, and there's no reason in principle why it can't only happen once to, to a person that is fundamentally different than all other persons, the person who is his Christ. So it's not a very good objection. All the other objections are taken into account such that if you look at the evidence— surrounding the testimony about Jesus, the way I would describe it is an embarrassment of riches. 
It's like, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Like when you compare it to any other document from the ancient world or any other set of testimonies, it's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing, right? It's like, it's like going to a cocktail party of like young women and being like seven times prettier than all the other girls and like figuring out what you're going to wear. Like it's, it's kind of like what you're figuring out. How to, you just got to be modest. You don't want to hurt other people's feelings. But there's like 40 times more evidence for the accuracy of the transmission of the Gospel of Luke, for example, than any other book from the ancient world. It's like, it's embarrassing. There's thousands and thousands, in most cases, tens of thousands of New Testament manuscripts, as opposed to like seven for things like Homer. And they're from very close to when the original was written. And they're transmitted out geographically. So you'd be like, well, even in 20 years, there can be like a lot of like stuff that changes. Yeah, except for when a document goes out in different directions and is transmitted in completely different geographical areas. And then you can take something from Turkey and like the western tip of Africa and compare them to each other. Those people didn't collude, okay? It's a 700-mile journey in a, like 1000 AD. Like, that's not going to happen. So you can apply and see if there are any changes, and there just aren't any changes that aren't obvious that you can't easily fix through textual criticism. Right? But the question then becomes, and because of that, that kind of criticism of the Bible was hot for about 100 years, and then it pretty much got answered. People don't really, who know anything about the history of the Bible, engage in that what's called lower criticism much anymore. What they do is they just criticize the internals of the document themselves. Like, well, Luke, Luke is just a guy who was in the early church. He had a bunch of political views and stuff he wanted to convince people of, and he just kind of made a lot of stuff up. And if you make stuff up and then it gets transmitted, well, maybe the stuff he made up got transmitted faithfully. That doesn't mean that it's not. That doesn't mean it's right, right? And now maybe that's true, but I think evidence has to be given for slander, frankly. Just because we're in a generation where we don't believe anybody will tell the truth if it's not in their interest doesn't mean that humans have always been like that. I wasn't raised that way. So, if you look at just these four verses, there are about, se- about 15 different specific claims about exactly how accurate Luke made this so that we could be certain about the testimony. All right, let's, let's go through these real quick, okay? This will only take an hour. I'm just kidding. It'll be fast. So the the first word, many, right? The work of investigating the life of Jesus has been done by many. So the source material is abundant. Luke is intentional about including very specific details like the division of the clan of Elizabeth and Zechariah, what rulers were were there at certain times, technical political titles of certain magistrates, and so on. And these have all been demonstrated accurate throughout the history of archaeology. Now, there are a couple that are still in dispute out of like 150. That's an incredible amount of accuracy that was partly achieved through the fact that many people had investigated this before Luke started on the enterprise himself. The second is drawing up, the, drawing up this account was a quote, an undertaking. Now listen, I've written three low quality books and I'm going to just tell you it's an undertaking. Like it's a big deal. And like Luke is saying, he said, listen, this is an undertaking. Like this, I didn't just wake up one morning and be like, hey, I've heard some stories about Jesus. I think I'll write them down. He's specifically describing this as a pretty profound, large-scoped, time-consuming work. That's what he means by undertaking. Third is an account. He uses that word twice. 
He's—and that's a technical word in this context related to a testimony. He's saying, I'm writing you a, a testifying account. That is something that is focused and designed to be accurate. It's not designed to be stylistic mainly, or doctrinally biased, or a work of political activism. He understands that he's functioning as a witness, and that it is not his job or the job of a witness to do more than witness to what they have seen. Fourth, among us, right? He's saying there's many witnesses, some of whom have died and handed things down, but some of whom are still alive. Because the group of people he's referring to are people who are still living. He's saying among all of us, those of us who are in the church right now, those of us, Theophilus, that you and I know, among all of us, these things were handed down, meaning that some of the people that had seen Jesus as eyewitnesses are still alive. There is a community of living eyewitnesses still, right? He sa- and he says, they were handed down to us because some people have died, and some of these traditions had been passed down a single generation at this point. Now, this gets some people confused because they think, oh, people passed down the traditions about Jesus, and that made up some group of documents, and then those documents were used to write the gospel. So you've got a trans—you have a transition issue because you've—it's essentially hearsay because there's a—there's an intervening group of people, but that's not right. Because not all generations fall off at the same time. So from the original generation, some had died, and there were some traditions that had been passed down. Okay? There were still also eyewitnesses who were currently alive that all of this could be checked with. There were two generations at this point because it had been 40 years right? Some still living, some would pass away and pass on traditions. And these two could be interlaced with each other and clarified and gotten right. So some things were handed down, he collected all that. Some things were eyewitnesses of people who are still among us, he collected all that. That's what he's claiming, right? He says, from the first. So he's not mainly relying on people who came into Jesus' ministry like halfway through, right? It's one of the reasons why Luke starts with the infancy narratives— Like in Mark's gospel, it starts right with the ministry of Jesus, right? Mark starts, and here's the gospel about Jesus, the Son of God, and we're off! And he's preaching, like on the fifth line. Luke starts with the infancy, the prophecies before Jesus was even born, and his genealogy doesn't just go back to Abraham to prove that Jesus is a Jew. It goes all the way back to Adam, because his gospel is for all people. Because Luke is a Gentile and a doctor and a historian. He's not Jewish. And he realizes the gospel is going to go out to all people, and all people have not heard about Jesus, and they weren't in Israel when this stuff was happening. So for them, it's all testimony. Do you understand? Like, he's imagining, like, a Greek dude in Corinth 200 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. What's it like for him? What's it like for us? To hear about an event that happened 2,000 years ago, for that guy 200 years ago. And you have no possibility of accessing it empirically. Because it's an event, so all there can possibly be is testimony. And so Luke is going out of his way to make sure that everything that can be gotten right about testimony is gotten right. So that he can create a testimony that can last for literally thousands of years and guide people to certainty. He's not taking this lightly. He knows exactly what he's trying to do. From the first. And then were eyewitnesses, that, that is— He's talked to numerous people who saw this stuff with their eyes from the first. And they were servants of the word, meaning this. There was no issue with access. Because you see, some people be like, well, this is what I saw. And you're like, did you really know the guy? Were you in the inner circle? Did you hear him talk afterwards? Did you hear what he said backstage before he came out on the stage? Like, how on the inside were you? And so Luke is saying, these people were from the first. They were eyewitnesses, and they were his servants. They were his disciples and apostles. They were in the most inner circles. Remember, Jesus is single— 
He selects the apostles to be with him. They're with him all the time, 24-7. And these are the witnesses, the witnesses that missed nothing. Right? And then he says, I myself did all this work. There's not one bit of work in the Gospel of Luke that I didn't do myself. So there's nothing farmed out. There's no, there's no bit that was contracted to somebody who's incompetent. He did every line himself. He said, I've carefully investigated in case a count and eyewitness and all of that wasn't enough. He says, listen, I have done this and I've done this as carefully as I know how. I've carefully investigated and he says everything. I investigated everything. Every claim, every site, every historical claim, every miracle, everything. I investigated personally. From the beginning, meaning he went all the way back to the things that happened and he investigated those. He wrote an orderly account because the idea is he's like, I didn't just, I didn't just clump it all together. I made sense of it for you. So that as you read it, you can understand the things that you've been taught. And he says explicitly, 15th, that he did everything with the goal that you could be certain. That was his goal. His goal was not to brainwash you. His goal wasn't even really to persuade you. Because you see, the Gospel of Luke is written to a believer. Do you understand? It's not, it's not propaganda to non-Christians, where he's like, well, I'm going to write all these fanciful stories about this Jesus figure that hopefully you'll believe in and we can expand our religion. That's not what he says he's writing for. Now, is this used evangelistically throughout the history of the church? Absolutely. But what Luke says he's doing is he's writing to somebody who's already a believer, who has already believed the testimony, but Luke believes that if he writes this document, he will add to the certainty that this person can possess and enjoy. Because the level of the certainty about the testimony adds to his certainty about the truth of the good news. And the truth of the good news is where he can see the Christ. And in the Christ, he sees the goodness and the glory of God. And when he sees that goodness and glory, he will be joyful and strengthened for spiritual substance. Do you understand? And he can face a world full of chaos. Now, his stated goal is certainty about the truth. He wants Theophilus, and he wants you to be able to say, I can know this. And the reason why that's important is, if you're going to actually walk with Jesus, you actually need a pretty profound level of certainty because you risk everything. Right? There's a certain amount of certainty that says, I guess I can believe in Jesus, and hopefully, if there's a hell, and if there's a God, and if there's like that kind of stuff, then I'll, I can believe in Jesus, and then I'll go to heaven, and that'll be good, um, and then I'll work this other stuff, right? And, but God isn't into you digging cisterns, right? Like, God has a way of life built into what it means to become like Jesus, which in, includes everything. And in order to face all of those things, to have the strength, to face all of those things, you need an enormous amount of courage, right? Luke is not writing to people, okay? He's not writing to people who are like, well, it'd be nice to have some comfort about what might happen after I die. That's not who he's writing to. He's writing to people who could have their homes raided at any time to be dragged out to a Roman Colosseum and to be told that they, if they don't burn incest in worship of the emperor, they will be fed to a lion. That's who he's writing to. He's creating the level of certainty necessary for martyrdom. That's what he's after. Now, you may say, well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to face that soon. Maybe. But Jesus says 
in Luke's gospel, we'll talk about when we get to chapter 9, he says, listen, if anybody doesn't take up their cross daily and follow me, right, they don't belong to me, right? That there is, in godliness itself, in following Jesus, there is a daily death sentence because you can't dig the cistern. You have to stand forward in courage and follow the Christ who is spiritually ferocious. And it takes a martyrdom amount of certainty courage to destroy a pornography habit. It takes a martyrdom level of courage to see your husband or your wife just emotionally drifting away from you for years and knowing that if you really poured out your heart to them, they would probably snap at you and it wouldn't go well like the first six times you tried it, but you see the intimacy lost in your relationship, and you see this is not what marriage is supposed to be, and it's not for the blessing of all mankind, and you know that if you're going to do something, it's going to be humiliating and difficult and painful, and you need courage. You need martyrdom-level courage, man. And if you're going to be, like, kind to people who are mean to you, and if you're going to have, if you're going to have the, the strength of character to save money so you can be generous— instead of spend more money than you've got. And so that when you, you have that moment where you could like, you could cut back on your vacation a little, and you could really support this thing that you really think would do some good. Like that's, that's a little bit of dying, right? Like you've always wanted those leather seats, right, that heat up. You don't want those cloth seats, not with kids, right? It's a little bit of dying to be like, Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this instead of get that moonroof I've always wanted, right? I'm not saying you have to do that. But there are—but but generosity always takes some sacrifices, right? Love, redemption, the actions of godliness are terrifying. They're terrifying because people will reject you. People won't approve of you. You'll lose comfort. You'll lose your good name. You'll get attacked. You're, you're going to face a coliseum of lions. The flesh— doesn't want to die. It wants to fight for itself. It wants to control your life. It wants easy answers and short solutions and nice comforts and other people to do stuff for you and not to be productive and to be lazy. It wants all those things and it has to be killed with a level of ferocity that can only be known by a martyr warrior. And that battle is not against that person. It's inside of you. And there's a level of certainty that you need to trust in the beauty of the glory of Christ. Or you will never face those things. You'll face little stuff. You'll make your sin more sophisticated. But you won't—you won't take the hammer to anything real. And 40 years later, you'll be like, I believe in Jesus. Church is kind of stupid. You know, you'll just kind of be like this wafy, vaporous, brittle person who has kind of a religion that you're not really that into. And your relationship with God feels like a marriage that got cold years ago, but you don't want to totally give up on it. There won't be any of the fire of the joy of the adventure of keeping in step with the Spirit throughout each day of life. And your life will not be filled with the daring joys of the adventure of living boldly and greatly and godly, seeking holiness that's not self-righteous, but that's beautiful and loving with self-control and perseverance. You are capable of so much. The problems in your life, they are not insurmountable. The things that you're not doing anything about, they don't all have to be there. And maybe other people won't respond to you, but that doesn't mean you don't act. There are so many steps of bravery right at your feet. They're actions of love. 
places where you shouldn't back down, situations where you need to reopen communication when you know it's going to be so hard. There are a thousand ways in which God has made you like himself to be a bringer of redemption in the image of Christ. And if they're there, you're capable of it because of him. In Christ, with the Spirit, by the direction of his word, you can do amazingly redemptive things in a world that is going buck nuts crazy. And it is a joyful war. It is a beautiful labor. And you are literally—I don't say this in any sense figuratively—you are literally created for it. That's what it means to bear the image of God, like Jesus bore it. You are amazingly powerful creatures that can bring levels of redemption you've never dreamed of, not just in your life, but in other people's lives. But you need joy, or this car does not run. And the kind of joy you need is the kind of joy that can motivate a martyr. And that joy is found in a vision of the glory and goodness of God himself. And that is displayed most perfectly for us in the man and the work of Jesus. And Luke is going to tell us his story over the next six or seven months. And my goal is very simple. My goal is to make your heart explode. Father, as we, um, as we try to love you, knowing that you first loved us, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, that you give us the capacity that, to trust in you in such a way that we could per- participate in the divine nature, hardly even know what that could mean. We know that you've said that you've given your spirit to be our comforter and our, our strengthener to, to lead us and teach us that we can keep in step with him, that you— You've given us so much, Father. Would you give us joy? Would you help us to see the beauty and glory and goodness of your Christ? Would you awaken a bravery in us for love so that we will give ourselves to striving and chasing after spiritual substance, so that we would throw off this, the sin that so easily entangles us and all the things that hinder us to run after Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that we have— we in this room, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. But we want to be the people with the kind of tenacity that we fight the inner fight to any point. Help it be for our joy and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name.